chapter twenty four of campaigning with grant by horace porter this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twenty four capture of fort fisher the dutch gap canal grant receive unasked advice grant relieves butler sherman's loyalty to grant a good shot night attack of the enemy's ironclads how grant became a confirmed smoker grant offers his purse to his enemy grant receives the peace commissioners as soon as general grant obtained accurate information in regard to the circumstances and conditions at fort fisher he decided to send another expedition and to put it in charge of an efficient officer and one who could be trusted implicitly to carry out his instructions as there had been a lack of precaution on the part of the officers engaged in the previous expedition to keep the movement secret the general-in-chief at first communicated the facts regarding the new expedition to only two persons at headquarters of course he had to let it be known to the secretary of war but as the secretary was always reticent about such matters there was a reasonable probability that the secret could be kept directions were given which tended to create the impression that the vessels were being loaded with supplies and reinforcements for sherman's armies and studious efforts were made to throw the enemy off his guard of course every one who knew the general's tenacity of purpose felt sure that he would never relinquish his determination to take fort fisher and would immediately take steps to retrieve the failure which had been made in the first attempt and as soon as butler returned i suggested to the general that in case another expedition should be sent general a h terry would be for many reasons the best officer to be placed in command we had served together in the sherman dupont expeditions which in eighteen sixty one took hilton head and captured fort pulaski and other points on the atlantic coast and i knew him to be the most experienced officer in the service in embarking and disembarking troops upon the sea-coast looking after their welfare on transports and entrenching rapidly on shore general grant had seldom come in contact with terry personally but had been much impressed at the manner in which he had handled his troops in the movements on the james river a suggestion too was made that as terry was a volunteer officer and as the first expedition had failed under a volunteer it would only be fair that another officer of that service rather than one from the regular army should be given a chance to redeem the disaster the general seemed to listen with interest to what was said about terry particularly as to his experience in sea-coast expeditions but gave no hint at the time of a disposition to appoint him nor did he even say whether he would send another expedition to fort fisher but on january two he telegraphed to butler please send major-general terry to city point to see me this morning grant considered the propriety of going in person with the expedition but his better judgment did not approve such a course for he could be too far out of reach of communication with city point and as butler was the senior army commander it would leave him in supreme command of the armies operating against petersburg and richmond when terry came the general-in-chief told him simply that he had been designated to take command of a transfer by sea of eight thousand men and that he was to sail under sealed orders terry felt much complimented that he should be singled out for such a command but had no idea of his destination and was evidently under the impression that he was to join sherman on january five terry was ready to proceed to fort monroe and grant accompanied him down the james river for the purpose of giving him his final instructions 
after the boat had proceeded some distance from city point the general sat down with terry in the after cabin of the steamer and there made known to him the real destination and purposes of the expedition he said the object is to renew the attempt to capture fort fisher and in case of success to take possession of wilmington it is of the greatest importance that there should be a complete understanding and harmony of action between you and admiral porter i want you to consult the admiral fully and to let there be no misunderstanding in regard to the plan of cooperation in all its details i served with admiral porter on the mississippi and have a high appreciation of his courage and judgment i want to urge upon you to land with all dispatch and entrench yourself in a position from which you can operate against fort fisher and not to abandon it until the fort is captured or you receive further instructions from me full instructions were carefully prepared in writing and handed to terry on the evening of january five and captains of the transports were given sealed orders not to be opened until the vessels were off cape henry the vessels soon appeared off the north carolina coast a landing was made on january thirteenth and on the morning of the fourteenth terry had fortified a position about two miles from the fort the navy which had been firing upon the fort for two days began another bombardment at daylight on the fifteenth that afternoon ames's division made an assault on the work two thousand sailors and marines were also landed for the purpose of making a charge they had received an order from the admiral in the wording of which facetiousness in nautical phraseology could go no further it read board the fort in a seamanlike manner they made a gallant attack but were met with a murderous fire and did not gain the work ames's division with curtis's brigade in advance overcame all efforts of the defenders and the garrison was driven from one portion of the fort to another in a series of hand-to-hand -hand contests in which individual acts of heroism surpassed almost anything in the history of assaults upon well-defended forts the battle did not close until ten o'clock at night then the formidable work had been fairly won the garrison was taken prisoners the mouth of the cape fear river was closed and wilmington was at the mercy of our troops the trophies were a hundred and sixty-nine guns over two thousand stands of small arms large quantities of ammunition and commissary stores and more than two thousand prisoners about six hundred of the garrison were killed or wounded terry's loss was a hundred and ten killed five hundred and thirty-six wounded and thirteen missing after the news of the capture of the fort was received i was sent there by general grant with additional instructions to terry and upon my arrival i could not help being surprised at the formidable character of the work no one without having seen it could form an adequate conception of the almost insurmountable obstacles which the assaulting columns encountered during the summer general butler who was always fertile in ideas had conceived the notion that there were many advantages to be gained by making a canal across a narrow neck of land known as dutch gap on the james river which would cut off four and three-quarter miles of river navigation this neck was about one hundred and seventy-four yards wide the name originated from the fact that a dutchman had many years before attempted a similar undertaking but little or no progress had been made the enterprise involved the excavation of nearly eighty thousand cubic feet of earth butler had been somewhat reluctantly authorized to dig the canal and work upon it had begun on august ten 
the enemy soon erected heavy rifle guns and afterward put mortars in positions which bore upon it and our men were subjected to a severe fire and frequently had to seek shelter in dugouts constructed as places of refuge under the delays and difficulties which arose the canal was not finished until the end of the year on the thirty first of december general grant received a message from butler saying we propose to explode the heading of dutch gap at eleven a m tomorrow i should be happy to see yourself and friends at headquarters we must be near the time because of the tide the general-in-chief replied do not wait for me in your explosion i doubt my ability to be up in the morning after the bulkhead wall of earth had been blown out the debris at the north end was partly removed by means of steam dredges the canal was not of any service during the war but it has since been enlarged and improved and has become the ordinary channel for the passage of vessels plying on the james river general grant had become very tired of discussing methods of warfare which were like some of the problems described in algebra as more curious than useful and he was not sufficiently interested in the canal to be present at the explosion which was expected to complete it about this time all the cranks in the country besides men of real inventive genius were sending extraordinary plans and suggestions for capturing richmond a proposition from an engineer was received one day accompanied by elaborate drawings and calculations which had evidently involved intense labor on the part of the author his plan was to build a masonry wall around richmond of an elevation higher than the tallest houses then to fill the enclosure with water pumped from the james river and drown out the garrison and people like rats in a cage the exact number of pumps required and their capacity had been figured out to a nicety another inventive genius whose mind seemed to run in the direction of the science of chemistry and the practice of sternutation sent in a chemical formula for making an all-powerful snuff in his communication he assured the commanding general that after a series of experiments he had made with it on people and animals he was sure that if shells were filled with it and exploded within the enemy's lines the troops would be seized with such violent fits of sneezing that they would soon become physically exhausted with the effort and the union army could walk over at its leisure and pick them up as prisoners without itself losing a man a certain officer had figured out from statistics that the james river froze over about once in seven years and that this was the seventh year and advised that troops be massed in such a position that when the upper part of the james changed from a liquid to a solid columns could be rushed across it on the ice to a position in rear of the enemy's lines and richmond would be at our mercy a sorcerer in rochester sent the general word that he had cast his horoscope and gave him a clear and unclouded insight into his future and added to its general attractiveness by telling him how gloriously he was going to succeed in taking richmond one evening the general referred to these emanations of the prolific brains of our people and the many novel suggestions made to him beginning with the famous powder-boat sent against fort fisher and closed the conversation by saying this is a very suggestive age some people seem to think that an army can be whipped by waiting for rivers to freeze over exploding powder at a distance drowning out troops or setting them to sneezing but it will always be found in the end that the only way to whip an army is to go out and fight it 
on january four general grant had written to the secretary of war asking that butler might be relieved saying i am constrained to request the removal of general butler from the command of the department of virginia and north carolina i do this with reluctance but the good of the service requires it in my absence general butler necessarily commands and there is a lack of confidence felt in his military ability making him an unsafe commander for a large army his administration of the affairs of his department is also objectionable learning that the secretary of war had gone to savannah to visit general sherman and could not receive this letter in due time on january sixth the general telegraphed to the president asking that prompt action be taken in the matter the order was made on the seventh and on the morning of the eighth general grant directed colonel babcock and me to go to general butler's headquarters announce the fact to him and hand him the written order relieving him from command we arrived there about noon found the general in his camp and by his invitation went with him into his tent he opened the communication read the order and was silent for a minute then he began to manifest considerable nervousness and turning to his desk wrote received on the envelope dated it eighteen sixty four instead of eighteen sixty five and handed it back it was the custom in the army to return envelope receipts in case of communications delivered by enlisted men but this was omitted when the instructions were transmitted by staff officers he was politely reminded that a written receipt was not necessary thereupon in a somewhat confused manner he uttered a word or two of apology for offering it and after a slight pause added please say to general grant that i will go to his headquarters and would like to have a personal interview with him general grant was in constant correspondence with sherman in regard to the movements in the carolinas sherman was to move north breaking up all lines of communication as he advanced if lee should suddenly abandon richmond and petersburg and move with his army to join the confederate forces in the carolinas with a view to crushing sherman that officer was to whip lee if he could and if not to fall back upon the sea-coast grant was to hold lee's army where it was if possible and if not to follow it up with vigor sherman's triumphant march to the sea had gained him many admirers in the north and it was believed about this time that a bill might be introduced in congress providing for his promotion to the grade of lieutenant-general which would make him eligible to command the armies in case he should be assigned to such a position on january twenty one he said in a letter to general grant i have been told that congress meditates a bill to make another lieutenant-general for me i have written to john sherman to stop it if it is designed for me it would be mischievous for there are enough rascals who would try to sow differences between us whereas you and i now are in perfect understanding i would rather have you in command than anybody else for you are fair honest and have at heart the same purpose that should animate all i should emphatically decline any commission calculated to bring us into rivalry general grant replied no one would be more pleased at your advancement than i and if you should be placed in my position and i put subordinate it would not change our relations in the least i would make the same exertions to support you that you have ever done to support me and i would do all in my power to make our cause win on january thirty one sherman wrote i am fully aware of your friendly feeling toward me and you may always depend on me as your steadfast supporter your wish is law and gospel to me and such is the feeling that pervades my army 
in all the annals of history no correspondence between men in high station furnishes a nobler example of genuine disinterested personal friendship and exalted loyalty to a great cause admiral porter had withdrawn nearly all the naval vessels from the james river in order to increase his fleet for the fort fisher expedition only three or four light gunboats were left and one ironclad the onondaga a powerful double turreted monitor carrying two fifteen-inch smoothbores and two one hundred and fifty pound parrot rifles this vessel was commanded by captain william a parker of the navy captain parker would occasionally pay a visit to general grant at city point and he usually brought with him a junior officer who afforded the general-in-chief no little amusement by the volubility of his conversation when the general asked the captain a question before he could venture a reply his sub would volunteer an answer and frequently make it the occasion of an elaborate lecture upon the intricate science of marine warfare the captain could rarely get in a word edgewise in fact he seemed to accept the situation and did not often make the attempt it might have been said of this young officer what talleyrand said of a french diplomat clever man but he has no talent for dialogue there had been so much talk about the formidable character of the double turreted monitors that general grant decided one morning to go up the james and pay a visit to the onondaga and invite me to accompany him the monitor was lying above the pontoon bridge in trent's reach after looking the vessel over and admiring the perfection of her machinery the general said to the commander captain what is the effective range of your fifteen-inch smooth-bores about eighteen hundred yards with their present elevation was the reply the general looked up the river and added there is a battery which is just about that distance from us suppose you take a shot at it and see what you can do the gun was promptly brought into position by revolving the turret accurate aim taken and the order given to fire there was a tremendous concussion followed by a deafening roar as the enormous shell passed through the air and then all eyes were strained to see what execution would be done by the shot the huge mass struck directly within the battery and exploded a cloud of smoke arose earth and splintered logs flew in every direction and a number of the garrison sprang over the parapet the general took another puff at the cigar he was smoking nodded his head and said good shot the naval officers indulged in broad smiles of triumph and tried to look as if this was only one of the little things they always did with equal success when they tried hard on the night of january twenty three a naval officer at general grant's suggestion was sent up to plant torpedoes at the obstructions which had been placed in the river at trent's reach as he was apprehensive that our depleted naval force might be attacked by the enemy's fleet which was lying in the river near richmond the officer made the discovery that the confederate ironclads were quietly moving down the river news of their approach was promptly given and at once telegraphed to headquarters the enemy's fleet consisted of six vessels and by half-past ten o'clock they had passed the upper end of dutch gap canal the general directed me and another staff officer to take boats and communicate with all dispatch with certain naval vessels warn them of the character of the anticipated attack and direct them to move up and make a determined effort to prevent the enemy's fleet from reaching city point the officer whom i was to take with me got a little rattled in the hurry of the departure and started from force of habit to put on his spurs 
it took me some time to persuade him that these appendages to his seals would not particularly facilitate his movements in climbing aboard gunboats a third officer lieutenant dunn was sent to communicate with a gunboat stationed at some distance from the others in the meantime orders were given to tow coal schooners up the river ready to sink them in the channel if necessary and instructions were issued to move all heavy guns within reach down to the river shore where their fire could command the channel there was an enormous accumulation of supplies at city point and their destruction at this time would have been a serious embarrassment the night was pitch dark but our naval vessels were promptly reached by means of steam tugs and their commanders who displayed that cordial spirit of cooperation always manifested by our sister service expressed an eagerness to obey general grant's orders as implicitly as if he had been their admiral most of these vessels were out of repair and almost unserviceable but their officers were determined to make the best fight they could when i returned to headquarters the general mrs grant and ingalls were talking the matter over in the front room of the general's quarters well now that we've got all ready for them said ingalls why don't their old gunboats come down ingalls you must have patience remarked the general perhaps they don't know that you're in such a hurry for them or they would move faster you must give them time well if they're going to postpone their movement indefinitely i'll go to bed continued ingalls and started for his quarters news now came that it was thought the vessels could not pass the obstructions and would not make the attempt and the general and mrs grant retired to their sleeping apartment orders being left that the general was to be awakened if there should be any change in the situation soon after one o'clock word came that the enemy's vessels had succeeded at high water in getting through the obstructions a loud knock was now given upon the door of the general's sleeping-room he called out instantly yes what have you heard the reply was the gunboats have passed the obstructions and are coming down in about two minutes the general came hurriedly into the office he had drawn on his top boots over his drawers and put on his uniform frock-coat the skirt of which reached about to the top of the boots and made up for the absence of trousers he lighted a cigar while listening to the reports and then sat down at his desk and wrote out orders in great haste the puffs from the cigar were now as rapid as those of the engine of an express train at full speed mrs grant soon after came in and was anxious to know about the situation it was certainly an occasion upon which a woman's curiosity was entirely justifiable dunn had returned with a report about the movement of the gunboat with which he had been sent to communicate and ingalls had also rejoined the party mrs grant in the midst of the scene quietly said ulyss will those gunboats shell the bluff well i think all their time will be occupied in fighting our naval vessels and the batteries ashore he replied the onondaga ought to be able to sink them but i don't know what they would do if they should get down this far just then news came in that upon the approach of the enemy's vessels the onondaga had retired down the river the captain had lost his head and under pretense of trying to obtain a more advantageous position had turned tail with his vessel and moved downstream below the pontoon bridge general grant's indignation knew no bounds when he heard of this retreat he said i have been thrown into close contact with the navy both on the mississippi river and upon the atlantic coast 
i entertained the highest regard for the intrepidity of the officers of that service and it is an inexpressible mortification to think that the captain of so formidable an ironclad and the only one of its kind we have in the river should fall back at such a critical moment why it was the great chance of his life to distinguish himself additional instructions were at once telegraphed to the shore batteries to act with all possible vigor mrs grant who was one of the most composed of those present now drew her chair a little nearer to the general and with her mild voice inquired eulis what had i better do the general looked at her for a moment and then replied in a half serious and half teasing way well the fact is julia you oughtn't to be here dunn now spoke up and said let me have the ambulance hitched up and drive mrs grant back into the country far enough to be out of reach of the shells oh their gunboats are not down here yet answered the general and they must be stopped at all hazards additional dispatches were sent and a fresh cigar was smoked the puffs of which showed even an increased rapidity at about two hours it was reported that only one of the enemy's boats was below the obstructions and the rest were above apparently aground more guns had by this time been placed in the shore batteries and the situation was greatly relieved ingalls whose dry humor always came to his rescue when matters were serious again assumed an air of disappointment and said i tell you i'm getting out of all patience and i've about made up my mind that these boats never intended to come down here anyhow that they've been playing it on us to keep us out of bed a little while after matters had to be so quieted down that the general-in-chief and mrs grant retired to finish their interrupted sleep at daylight the onondaga moved up within nine hundred yards of the confederate ironclad virginia the flagship and opened fire upon her some of the shore guns were also trained upon her and a general pounding began she was struck about one hundred and thirty times our fifteen-inch shells doing much damage another vessel the richmond was struck a number of times and a third the drury and a torpedo launch were destroyed at flood tide the enemy succeeded in getting their vessels afloat and withdrew up the river that night they came down again and attacked the onondaga but retired after meeting with a disastrous fire from that vessel and our batteries on the river banks this was the last service performed by the enemy's fleet in the james river on the morning of january twenty four breakfast in the mess-room was a little later than usual as every one had been trying to make up for the sleep lost the previous night when the chief had lighted his cigar after the morning meal and taken his place by the camp-fire a staff officer said general i never saw cigars consumed quite so rapidly as those you smoked last night when you were writing dispatches to head off the ironclads he smiled and remarked no when i come to think of it those cigars didn't last very long did they an allusion was then made to the large numbers he had smoked the second day of the battle of the wilderness in reply to this he said i had been a very light smoker previous to the attack on donelson and after that battle i acquired a fondness for cigars by reason of a purely accidental circumstance admiral foote commanding the fleet of gunboats which were cooperating with the army had been wounded and at his request i had gone aboard his flagship to confer with him the admiral offered me a cigar which i smoked on my way back to my headquarters on the road i was met by a staff officer who announced that the enemy were making a vigorous attack 
i galloped forward at once and while riding among the troops giving directions for repulsing the assault i carried the cigar in my hand it had gone out but it seems that i continued to hold the stump between my fingers throughout the battle in the accounts published in the papers i was represented as smoking a cigar in the midst of the conflict and many persons thinking no doubt that tobacco was my chief solace sent me boxes of the choicest brands from everywhere in the north as many as ten thousand were soon received i gave away all i could get rid of but having such a quantity on hand i naturally smoked more than i would have done under ordinary circumstances and i have continued the habit ever since general grant never mentioned however one incident in connection with the battle of donelson and no one ever heard of it until it was related by his opponent in that battle general buckner in a speech made by that officer at a banquet given in new york on the anniversary of general grant's birthday april twenty seventh eighteen eighty nine he said under these circumstances sir i surrendered to general grant i had at a previous time befriended him and it has been justly said that he never forgot an act of kindness i met him on the boat and he followed me when i went to my quarters he left the officers of his own army and followed me with that modest manner peculiar to himself into the shadow and there tendered me his purse it seems to me mr chairman that in the modesty of his nature he was afraid the light would witness that act of generosity and sought to hide it from the world we can appreciate that sir on the morning of the thirty first of january general grant received a letter sent in on the petersburg front the day before signed by the confederates alexander h stevens j a campbell and r m t hunter asking permission to come through our lines these gentlemen constituted the celebrated peace commission and were on their way to endeavor to have a conference with mr lincoln the desired permission to enter our lines was granted and babcock was sent to meet them and escort them to city point some time after dark the train which brought them arrived and they came at once to headquarters general grant was riding in his quarters when a knock came upon the door in obedience to his come in the party entered and were most cordially received and a very pleasant conversation followed stevens was the vice-president of the confederacy campbell a former justice of the supreme court of the united states was assistant secretary of war and hunter was president pro tempore of the confederate senate as general grant had been instructed from washington to keep them at city point until further orders he conducted them in person to the headquarters steamer the mary martin which was lying at the wharf made them his guests and had them provided with well-furnished staterooms and comfortable meals during their stay they were treated with every possible courtesy their movements were not restrained and they passed part of the time upon the boat and part of it at headquarters stevens was about five feet five inches in height his complexion was sallow and his skin seemed shrivelled upon his bones he possessed intellect enough however for the whole commission many pleasant conversations occurred with him at headquarters and an officer once remarked after the close of an interview the lord seems to have robbed that man's body of nearly all its flesh and blood to make brains of them 
the commissioners twice endeavored to draw general grant out as to his ideas touching the proper conditions of the proposed terms of peace but as he considered himself purely a soldier not entrusted with any diplomatic functions and as the commissioners spoke of negotiations between the two governments while the general was not willing to acknowledge even by an inference any government within our borders except that of the united states he avoided the subject entirely except to let it be known by his remarks that he would gladly welcome peace if it could be secured upon proper terms mr lincoln had directed mr seward the secretary of state on january thirty one to meet the commissioners at fort monroe on february two general grant telegraphed the president that he thought the gentlemen were sincere in their desire to restore peace and union and that it would have a bad effect if they went back without any expression from one who was in authority and said he would feel sorry if mr lincoln did not have an interview with them or with some of them this changed the president's mind and he started at once for fort monroe the commissioners were sent down the james river that afternoon and were met at fort monroe by the president and mr seward on the third and had a conference lasting several hours aboard the president's steamer mr lincoln stated that peace could be secured only by a restoration of the national authority over all the states a recognition of the position assumed by him as to the abolition of slavery and an understanding that there should be no cessation of hostilities short of an end of the war and a disbanding of all forces hostile to the government the commissioners while they did not declare positively that they would not consent to reunion avoided giving their assent and as they seemed to desire to postpone that important question and to adopt some other course first which might possibly lead in the end to union but which mr lincoln and mr seward thought would amount simply to an indefinite postponement the conference ended without result after stopping at city point and having another conversation with general grant principally in reference to an exchange of prisoners the confederate commissioners were escorted through our lines on their way back to richmond i accompanied the escort part of the way and had an interesting talk with mr stevens he was evidently greatly disappointed at the failure of the conference but was prudent enough not to talk much about it he spoke freely in regard to general grant saying we all form our preconceived ideas of men of whom we have heard a great deal and i had certain definite notions as to the appearance and character of general grant but i was never so completely surprised in all my life as when i met him and found him a person so entirely different from my idea of him his spare figure simple manners lack of all ostentation extreme politeness and charm of conversation were a revelation to me for i had pictured him as a man of a directly opposite type of character and expected to find in him only the bluntness of the soldier notwithstanding the fact that he talks so well it is plain that he has more brains than tongue he continued by saying what he said several times in washington after the war and also wrote in his memoirs he is one of the most remarkable men i ever met he does not seem to be aware of his powers but in the future he will undoubtedly exert a controlling influence in shaping the destinies of the country mr stevens was wrapped from his eyes to his heels in a coarse gray overcoat about three sizes too large for him with a collar so high that it threatened to lift his hat off every time he leaned his head back 
this coat together with his complexion which was as yellow as a ripe ear of corn gave rise to a characterization of the costume by mr lincoln which was very amusing the next time he saw general grant at city point after the peace conference he said to him in speaking on the subject did you see stevenson's greatcoat oh yes answered the general well continued mr lincoln soon after we assembled on the steamer at hampton roads the cabin began to get pretty warm and stephen stood up and pulled off his big coat he peeled it off just about as you would husk an ear of corn i couldn't help thinking as i looked first at the coat and then at the man well that's the biggest shuck and the littlest nubbin i ever did see this story became one of the general's favorite anecdotes and he often related it in after years with the greatest zest End of chapter 24